What's up, everyone? Welcome to my inaugural episode of Rhapsody with Roe. I hope you all had a chance to read my my first article. It is actually about Kobe Bryant and how he inspired me, um, how he's inspired greatness. And unfortunately, I can't have a conversation with Kobe, but there are examples I see in my life of greatness. And my, my next guest is somebody who I think uh, everybody will really enjoy hearing from. So he's got such varied accomplishments. Um, but just to give you some highlights, this is a guy that scored a perfect score in the SAT, but was also the homecoming king in high school. He uh, had such groundbreaking research in his time at U of M in the area of cancer that he had an opportunity to meet Obama. And this is also a person who's written a health policy speech for Hillary Clinton during her campaign. Everybody, please welcome uh, Tejas Carnati to Rhapsody with Roe. Tejas, thanks for joining me today, my friend. Pleasure to be here, Rohith. You know, I, I've gotten the chance to know you well. I know that uh, your father and mother were a huge influence on you growing up. Can you talk to me? I, I broke down what you know Kobe Bryant said about what inspired him. I think the first step for him was this inherent desire to pursue excellence as a basketball player. The question is, you know, what in that upbringing for you gave you this desire to, you know, sort of go out there and achieve excellence? Yeah, um, I would probably have to say um, it's my mom uh, for more reasons than one. Uh, I kind of have to break down the reasons, probably an external and an internal reason. My mom would be the one who basically would, for lack of a better word, threaten me with um, a, a bleak future. Um, <laughs> she would constantly would probably yell at me or, you know, beat me. I mean, you know, that was how how Indian mothers even now uh, act. Um, <laughs> I'm well aware. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so one one method that she would auto, always use is, you know, you're going to work at McDonald's if, if you don't <laughs> study hard enough or do all of this. Um, but obviously that was a small part, um, also but a very important part of why I wanted to do something with my life. Um, but an additional reason would be um, how much my dad had achieved with what little he had. Um, because this was a man that was born in, he took me once to his village um, back in 2009 when we went to India. And he, he, was never a, he was never ashamed of his past, but he took me to a small, small hut um, that he was born in. And it was literally just a, maybe like a 10 foot by 10 foot little room with a, with a thatched roof. And he's like, this is where I was born. And he was proud of it. You know, and this is a man that eventually went on to Oxford and, and Cambridge, and he graduated with PhDs there. And that was another component of why I'm like, if this is a man that was in a thatched hut, if you will, uh, and he achieved so much, um, you know, at least I should do a little bit of that. Um, otherwise, I would look bad. Uh, probably would be my second reason. And a third reason was, I think, um, I've always... Uh, loved learning itself. Um, and that's something that my dad and my mom kind of taught me early on. It's not, um, I'm not learning for the sake of, oh, I want to make money or I want to, you know, have a comfortable life. Um, whether it's like anything as mundane as, uh, you know, just learning about, I just recently I was learning about spices, Indian spices, just because, you know, I started cooking recently, like really get into cooking. Like I like dive deep into spices and the spice trade and, you know, I had to like 
I, I went on like a whole tangent of two hours of just learning about spices. So I think it's those three, the, the love of learning and trying to emulate my dad and also being afraid of, of my mom, probably, and jokingly, but, you know, in a real sense as well, uh, really motivated me. Yeah, I think, you know, that makes a lot of sense. It sort of encapsulates a lot of this generation where we have, you know, our, our parents immigrated here and, you know, there is uh, a healthy dose of sort of push from the, from, from the parents to achieve. But then uh, there's that generation has achieved so much success and it almost feels like with the platform that they've given us, it would, you know, sort of uh, go to waste if we ourselves didn't pursue that excellence. But I think in that third point that you brought up, it, it's it's a nice segue because, um, as you as you might have read uh, uh, in what I wrote about Kobe, it's f- the first thing for him was that there's this desire, and I think mm-hmm. you you talked on this desire. But the next part is is really just this pursuit of knowledge and this love of knowledge. Can you talk to me about you know the methods that you've taken to pursue knowledge, um, you know? If you get intrigued by something in, you know, like you just described with spices, what is it about that pursuit of knowledge that just gets you so excited to delve into any subject matter, any topic? Yeah. You know, to be very honest, that's a question that I've pondered for probably a couple of years now, simply because, as you may not know, um, I, I started, I stopped teaching uh, because of the, how much, you know, residency my neurosurgery residency, how busy it's getting. So I stopped teaching my uh, SAT, ACT classes. And since that time, I've had so many parents who've asked me to restart teaching and, and all of that. And I've, I've grown to kind of look back at my 10 years of, of, you know, teaching SAT and ACT. And I've tried to understand, you know, what, what kids and what I have um, whenever whenever I'm thinking about learning something new. And one thing that I think um, I recently only probably discovered was that um, from probably middle school to high school, um, it's I immediately took out the final end result of learning because for most kids when they're growing up, when they're learning math or when they're learning anything, they want to figure out how I can apply it, obviously. Um, and how is it useful to my future, you know, uh, betterment of my life? Um, now, while that's all good and also very important, um, what I realized kind of going back to my memories was that I stopped thinking about knowledge in that way. I actually ended up putting knowledge in a, in a different context. And that context really is when I learn something new, um, I'm constantly asking myself why, 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 and reducing it to the lowest level so that there's no more you can really find. Um, and it's that pursuit of why, the reductionist pursuit of why, where you keep on, keep on going and answering questions along the way, that in and of itself, that journey itself is actually not just for me, but even for you or for anybody else. If you constantly put that in your mind and go through that go through that tunnel or go through that journey, that in and of itself is quite exciting. Um, because if if you look at the end goal, sometimes you may get excited, sometimes you may not. But if you look at the actual journey itself, 
and you learn all the different little lefts and rights you, t you take and all the different detours you take, that in and of itself is quite exciting to me. It's, it's amazing that you uh, describe this. Um, by the way, I do want to jump uh, into uh, your school. That's the, the most important part of the conversation. So uh, everybody listening, you just got a little bit of a teaser into what we're going to get into. But yeah. to go back to the point that you just made, this is actually was one of the most interesting things I found to bring this back to Kobe Bryant was even in his eulogy, Michael Jordan gave a eulogy for Kobe Bryant. He said mm -hmm. the, that Kobe Bryant was almost incessant and annoying to the point where he would ask the most ridiculous small details of every single thing from how he moved to how he posted up to how he fa his fadeaways. And, you know, this is an expert in his own right. But yeah. he never stopped to to the point that you just made. He never stopped breaking down the minutia of basketball. And it's amazing that you have the clarity to describe your, your pursuit of knowledge in the same way, because I think that teachers find that teachers understand and, and respect the fact that they have these students that are asking them this level of detail for a particular reason. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in that fashion, I think Michael Jordan explained how he took interest in being a, a teacher to Kobe Bryant for that reason. That, that is so fascinating. Now, an interesting thing about what you brought up is sometimes if you look at the end destination, um, you know, you might lose that excitement. But if you get excited about those details, um, you know, then you can really keep going along the journey. Mm -hmm. The area that I think never gets talked en about enough is the area of perseverance. So when you pursue excellence and you're on this journey to greatness, you fumble and fail so many times. So the question is, as you went on these pursuits and you break down this minutia, what do you do when you get into a dead end or when you fail or something doesn't go the right way? Can you talk to me about something like that that's happened, how it's inspired you and how you pivoted, you know, that knowledge pursued and that, that journey toward excellence? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I don't think uh, of myself as trying to pursue greatness in that sense. <laughs> and I don't think I'm, I'm there yet or, I know, you know, I don't look at the journey um, in that uh, way. But speaking of fumbles, um, in any journey, you're obviously going to fumble quite a bit. And I've had my share of fumbles over the years. Um, and I can name quite a quite a few, actually. Uh, but, you know, one of my earliest, biggest uh, failures, if you will, would be when I was in um, when I was in undergrad, you know, we, we were uh, we, we were essentially trying to uh, figure out this new type of um, cancer chemotherapeutic uh, for a particular line of uh, multiple myeloma. And um, I had worked on this for a good six months straight through. And for, for reasons that are somewhat uh, difficult to explain in a short amount of time, um, you know, the, the cell lines that I was working on were just wrong to begin with. So the whole six months was a complete failure. Um, and then I'm sitting there thinking to myself, here, here I am, you know, wasted six months of, of something that I could have spent doing something else. Um, so what am I to do? And that, especially when you're wasted six months and you know that there's nothing, absolutely nothing that's going to come out of it, because some people, you know, Maybe thinking who are listening right now, maybe there's a end silver lining to this that oh something did come out of it. I can tell you right now, nothing came out of it. 
Um, it was a total waste of six months. But having having thought about that, um, th- at that point, you go back and reassess about what actually you did for those six months. Forget the fact that you actually never, quote unquote, amounted to anything. But think about the self-growth you've actually had in those six months. Think of all the relationships you've made um, in your lab. Think of all the other uh, knowledge you've gained and think of all the things that you now know what not to do. That in and of itself, um, even though it may not in the beginning bring you peace and comfort, um, the real act of going back and reassessing and being thankful for even those months that, sure enough, it didn't amount to anything, but at least you've had all of these experiences, that in and of itself is a positive thing. Um, And I think whenever you fumble or whenever you fail or whenever you have untoward circumstances that you just don't like or you just don't expect, it's okay. That's number one. You're going to feel sad in the beginning. You're going to feel hopeless at the end. But going back and reassessing everything and then being thankful for all those small, small details that you probably never even thought about in the beginning when you're going through that journey, uh, you know, that really actually grounds you and you finally end up realizing how much you've actually gained from that experience. So you think that in, in you know, in this, in this time when perseverance is, is an important part of the journey, do you think an important part of defining perseverance is finding silver lining in things not going the right way? I mean, it sounds like, you know, from what you're describing that, um, you know, again, I'll, I'll take this back to Kobe Bryant. He tore mm-hmm. his Achilles. You know, pragmatically, to your point, that time that he spent rehabbing is lost. He can't be playing basketball. It's a year that is a, you know, takes away from his career, but he still came back full force and proved he could lace him up again. I guess after you had that six-month failure, were you able to sort of almost immediately reflect on some of these lessons, and what did you quickly do to repivot uh, in, in that moment? Yeah. So number one, I think finding a silver lining is not always possible. Um, it's even the the very act of trying to think that there's always a silver lining itself can sometimes be dangerous in the sense that uh, you just will be searching for a silver lining, you know? Um, so instead of thinking of it as, oh, if I have a negative experience, maybe I'll find the positive in that negative instead of doing it like that, you can turn the entire negative experience into a positive one. Um, Because you may not be able to find anything positive about it at the end of the day. Um, So that's number one. Find out ways of of how you can turn something positive and how are some ways, how do you can do that? Well, number one, you you bring, you know, Kobe Bryant's uh, torn Achilles. Um, Keep in mind when uh, when you're not playing or when you're out of season, it doesn't matter, but you basically have a, an opportunity now to reconnect with your family, reconnect with other loved ones that you may or may not have been able to do so before. Um, and that's just an example, but you can basically turn this into something positive by refocusing on something else. And the other thing you can do also is mentally and physically train yourself so that you can come back with a big punch. Um, in, in that same vein, you know, goes back to my whole point about how you can somehow train yourself, even though it's really, really difficult, even though you may not find something positive in your experience, 
how you can train yourself to somehow turn everything positive. Uh, I think that's the key. Uh, finding a silver lining, uh, and I've been through many experiences in my life, I know it's not possible at all. There's sometimes bad stuff happens, and that's just it. You know, bad stuff happened to you. But can you turn it into something positive is the real question. Amazing. Amazing. I think, uh, you know, the way you sum that up is, uh, is spot on. And, you know, you hear Kobe Bryant say the same thing when he came back from his Achilles tear. The question was, um, wasn't, you know, if he was going to come back, it was how is he going to let this define him? And once he made the decision that it was only going to be a blip and not the end of his career, that 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 was all it took to get him back on the on the court. Um, you know, we I, I really want to spend the most time, though, they just talking about um, how teachers inspire greatness. And in particular, mm-hmm. I think that the ability with which you just were able to sort of describe the lessons that you've learned is in essence, um, you know, it demonstrates your ability to be a teacher. And so, you know, what people listening may not know is that um, I mentioned earlier in the, uh, uh, at the beginning of the episode that you um, scored a perfect score in your SAT. You know, that was one example for me of your greatness. But, you know, the interesting thing about you is you actually opened up a school uh, to train students on the SAT and ACT. You've had multiple students who've come to your school and then have subsequently scored perfect scores on the SAT and ACT. And in fact, if I'm saying this correctly, there was a particular school year in the state of Michigan where every single perfect score on the, on the SAT exam, except for one student, what were all students of yours. Um, I want to talk about that. Um, and, you know, I also want to talk about uh, the teachers that you had along the way, how they inspired you and how you were able to translate that as a teacher. So, so let's talk about uh, Thaja's test prep and the school that you had. What, what have you been doing for the people um, in uh, Southeast Michigan in your community uh, with respect to standardized testing? Yeah. Um, well, it, it all kind of starts with, with my dad. So my dad was probably be, would be my first teacher, if you will. Um, so he, 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 was, uh, he graduated from uh, Oxford and he taught at uh, Cambridge um, as a professor. Um, he taught um, British and American literature. And this was just a, an Indian guy teaching British and American literature, mind you. Um, but then for many other reasons, he switched to computers and he went to the United States. Um, but he's the first inspiration I had to even start an SAT, ACT class, uh, simply because when I got my score back, um, obviously I was happy. Um, and my dad just kind of casually mentioned, oh, Imagine if you could teach or at least share whatever tricks you've had uh, with your fellow you know, classmates who are a little bit younger than you. And I thought, okay, well, that's somewhat interesting. Um, so, so I'll just stop you right there. So that's amazing. So almost in, in, in your upbringing, because there was that instinctual teacher nature in your father, his first thought wasn't to just maybe, you know, Apart, I'm sure he congratulated you on his accolade, but he almost immediately said to you, what can you do now to teach that to others? Yeah, actually, he didn't even congratulate me, I remember. So <laughs> uh, I logged in. Um, you know, you could you could log in and 
type your name and you get your score. And obviously my mom's right behind me. She's she's the ultimate like parent who's always constantly next to you, like worrying for you and being happy with you. Um, and my dad was kind of in the room. So I logged in, I got my score. My mom was obviously very happy and my dad was happy, but neither of them ever congratulate you. And that's just the way they, they were brought up. They'll always just kind of say good job or, or very some, something very minimal. And then they'll give me something to eat or something. So in that same, <laughs> exactly. So in that same vein, my, um, my dad, first he said, uh, yes, he did say good job, I think. Um, but then immediately, as soon as right after that, imagine what would happen if you could teach your tricks to some of your, you know, younger classmates, because I've had some younger, like p- people in 10th grade who were also my friends, um, who were also studying. And he, he knew that because he, that were, there were kids of his friends as well. So immediately his mind turned to that. Um, and that's how this whole thing actually began. Because I never ever imagined or dreamed that I would teach SAT or ACT or uh, or anything like that. It's really that conversation I had right after I logged in and viewed my score that um, you know I, I I started having this uh, this thought in my mind. Um, and after that, it it literally took maybe about a month or so. Um, other people have he- had heard my score through my school, and it kind of spreads. At any time in the Indian community, everything spreads like wildfire immediately, especially anything academic or anything of that nature kind of spreads really quickly. And all of a sudden, I had a bunch of these calls. Um, so I started just teaching from... Uh, I, at that time, we were in an apartment. So I started teaching from my apartment, actually. And then we moved to, a, to the a local library, and then we had bought a house, and then I started teaching in my basement. Uh, within that, all this happened within a year and a half. And then soon, the classes got so big, I had hundreds and hundreds of students coming in. And that's when I decided, okay, we have to actually open up a, a building and make it more official. Um, and, and that's how it started, really, all this, from one and, little. And, and this is amazing. So, you know, as you're describing this, just so we're all clear, you're, you're what, 19, 20 years old when this is happening? You're in the middle of undergraduate right now when you're starting the school? Yeah. Well, I actually started it in, my, um, in the summer of my 11th to 12th grade. So actually, because I got my score in like the March of 11th grade, and then, you know, I was applying to college, but at the same time, I started the SAT classes. Amazing. So, okay, so you start this and I mean, you know, talk to me about even your journey as a teacher, because it sounds like when you started doing these courses, you're teaching kids your age. So there's Mm -hmm. a relatability factor in that, you know, you're all going through the same thing at once. And then what did you do to adapt your teaching style as your school grew by leaps and bounds? And then these are folks who are really, really looking up to you, not just for the score, but also they're they're younger and impressionable. And uh, they see you as somebody who's on the path towards becoming a doctor and, you know, the goals and ambitions they've set for themselves. You know, how did you sort of adjust your teaching style? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, you know, the, the kids that I have, you can kind of group them into three different groups. Um, one of them, they're, they're interested, they're motivated, they're ambitious, and they're there to learn as much from you as possible. Uh, the other group is they're forced there by their parents but they really don't want to be there. And then you have the group of kids who are kind of in the middle where they just want to try it out. Uh, they don't have a particular goal in mind or anything, but they heard some good things and, you know, let me just go and, and see what I had. 
And each of those three groups, you have to relate to them in a different way, especially when I was younger in 12th grade, you know, and you also had the other group, which are parents. So really, I had really four groups that I had to deal with. And when I was younger, the parents would obviously see me. And the only reason they came here is because they heard recommendations from others. But then once they see me, they know there's this, basically at that time, I was only uh, 16 or 17. And they see this 17-year-old kid who's, you know, uh, seemingly got the score, but how are they going to teach their 15-year-old kid? You know, there's just a two-year difference. So the way I dealt with the parents was that, you know, I gave them opportunities to ask me any questions, you know, whatever uh, questions they've had. I used to have an entire class devoted to just parents because half the battle is educating the parents because you have to kind of tell the parents when to truly push their kids and when to back off of them. And that's the one problem we have in our Indian community and in, in especially because some parents push a lot, some parents don't, but it seems to be that very few parents have the right balance of pushing and knowing when to stop. And I think, and that's not because it's their fault, it's just because no one really sits down to tells them, you know, this is where you should actually inspire your kids and this is where you should kind of back off. Um, and I used to educate and actually have like a couple classes devoted to uh, a parent teaching session um, so that they themselves can understand all the stresses that a 11th grader or a, or a 10th grader goes through whenever they're thinking of an SAT or the ACT. And then finally, to deal with the other three kids, those ambitious kids, you know, what I find is they're constantly trying to see what what things they can get from you and they'll constantly try to test you as well as a teacher so you have to be on your toes because you have some of these really intelligent kids that will always think that oh you know what i'm pretty good and i'm here to learn a little bit more but you know in the deepest of deepest in my mind i know that i know more than this guy so constantly they will test you and they'll even try to find faults in your in your lectures if you will so you have to realize that, and I, and I did realize that, and, but it was a, definitely a, a kind of a, a journey in and of itself where you had, to be, you had to be constantly on your toes because otherwise you would lose that respect that they had for you. And then those kids who just didn't want to be here, it's really how do you motivate them? So motivation is something that is very different based on what kid it is, but what I, what I know that work for me and how to motivate these kids uh, because keep in mind you're not going to be able to motivate 100% of kids that's just you know impossible anyone who tells you otherwise uh, clearly has not taught enough kids um, there's always going to be some kids that you just can't spark and that's that's okay and that happens um, especially when you're dealing with a large group of kids but I can tell you a good 90% of them you can easily motivate them and how do you do that well um, one thing is you have to have a certain one-on-one -on -one time with them, especially those kids who are not involved in the class discussions. And you simply have an open heart-to-heart -heart discussion where it can't be a cheesy discussion either because those kids will easily see, see right through you. If you kind of act as the parent, if you will, or act as the, the adult in the room, even though you're just two years older than this guy, um, they'll see right through it and they won't even connect to you. But if you, if you truly look at it as if you're more you're more like a bigger brother to them or a you know bigger sister to them or something of that nature and you're not really concerned about 
their welfare, but all you're concerned about is, can you get them a good score so that they can do whatever they really want to do in the end? Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. So that heart-to-heart -heart talks and connections is the only way I found so far to, to motivate them. But the problem is very few people have the time or the willingness to do that, especially when you're dealing with a whole bunch of kids all at once. But for me, it was more, um, I just love teaching. So I would, you know, actually spend a whole Saturday where I would just call them and say, you know, I, I noticed that you're struggling uh, on, on my Sunday's classes. Is there anything we can do? What do you want to talk about? And we would just talk, you know, whether it's about SAT or even just life in general. And I've learned so much in those discussions as well, just about life, just about, you know, how kids think. Because even though I've also been a kid, it's I've had an experience myself, um, but also it's interesting to understand how others' experiences, how it shapes them, and how if you get into their head, how much you can understand about that person. Um, so, you know, that, that's one thing that I think um, helped in my motivation efforts. That That's amazing. So... So look, I, you know, you, you talked about your approach to teaching, and I think that instinctually sort of, uh, that demonstrates how instinctually I think you are, um, have been effective as a teacher because you see that in, in your ability to relate to, uh, to your students. There's one more thing I, I think I really want to talk about, which is, you know, the example that you set for people in the process of doing this. So... You know, Kobe Bryant always talked about the Mamba mentality, right? It was just, mm -hmm. it was this, it was this drive and passion in him um, to give his very best, at, you know, at all at all costs. It didn't matter if that meant he, it, he'd have to forego sleep, he'd have to forego time, and it's the things mm -hmm. that you you talked about before the sacrifices to do this. I think I really want to hear from you. Is there was a point in your life where? you know, you're, you're doing under, you're an undergrad. Um, I know you're not one to, uh, to, you know, to tout your achievements, but I'll do it for you because I have to, oh, no. you're doing this groundbreaking research at U of M, right? Um, you get, you get accepted into all of these medical schools and you chose to go to medical school closer to Michigan. Um, so you, you went to medical school in Pittsburgh and you used to take a bus back every weekend during medical school to come back and teach these kids and go back to medical school. How did you do it? Where did you pull all of that drive and, and, and passion from? Because I'll tell you, I talk to a lot of brilliant people and mm -hmm. they and they go through the rigor of medical school. And just that alone is it, it, it is too much for them to handle. How did you do it all? And, 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 and how do you think that the example that you you sort of um, set for your students from what you were doing probably also inspired them. Yeah. Well, you know, you bring up a good point, the Mamba mentality. So, you know, uh, from, from, a, from that book, the How I Playbook, you know, it's basically, it's simply stated as, you know, just trying to get better every day, or it's just like the simplest form of just trying to get better at whatever you're doing. It kind of, uh, you know, I don't mean to say that, I ever reached that mamba state, if you will. But what I can tell you is one of the big drivers uh, of uh, me going back weekly. So because keep in mind, it's about a four and, uh, it's about a six hour bus ride. I used to take the mega bus um, for the first two years of uh, of my medical school from Pittsburgh to 
to Ann Arbor, and then my mom would you know pick me up from Ann Arbor and then go home. And it, I would have to start that journey Friday night as soon as I'm done with the classes at, in Pittsburgh, you know, take that. And then I would reach probably um, Detroit around like I don't know, 11 p.m. or something. And then Saturday and Sunday, I would have these classes. And then Sunday night, I would take the bus back. Um, so why did I do that? Well, there, there are basically two reasons. One of them is I had already built this this amazing uh, community of, of students that it, it was almost like an extension of me and to stop that extension of me when I know that there was a possible way to do it um, was, was, was way too hard. So I, I just couldn't do it. Uh, even though my mom actually said, okay, this is the time where you focus on your career, focus on medical school. And for me, it's, it's, I knew I could, I know it's important to focus on my career, but when I when you stop an extension of yourself, you know that in and of itself is a big sacrifice, um, and I viewed it that way. So I I, I told my mom, you know, I, I can't do this. I, I you know I, I promise you that I can juggle this and I can juggle this. Um, and yes, there's going to be problems along the way, and I just need you to be there and support me. Um, and yes, I will stumble, but you need to be there just to support me. And she understood. I, I, I actually thought she would, you know, just argue with me. But, you know, she actually did understand. And and that that was one thing. And the other thing is, you know, my mom at that point was was alone uh, because my father had passed away uh, back in 2011. So that was also another big motivating factor of just to see her face every week, you know, uh, because like it or not, she loved it when I came every week. Um, even if it was for the classes and even if sometimes it was just like one day I could come, she loved that. She loved cooking for me. She loved, you know, making that all, all those dishes. And I would take them back to Pittsburgh for that, for that week. So those are the two, two main reasons, but you know, there are some weeks that, oh my God, I mean, th there was a snowstorms and there was this, and I couldn't cancel classes because Michigan was fine, but Pittsburgh was bad. So how could I, you know, how could I do it? Well, I constantly there's there's maybe two things that I, I probably thought about in my in my mind. I thought um, if I if there is a way that I can study on the bus, if there is any little part of me that can or will be able to do it, then I have no excuse really. Yes, I can be lazy and I can just kind of uh, sleep a little bit in Pittsburgh and and just say, oh, you know what, it's snowy here. I'm sorry, but. In the heart of my heart, I know there is still a way. The bus is not canceled, right? I can still go there. I can even drive. And it's not as long as it's not dangerous, obviously. Um, so if there is a way where if, if somebody looks at me and they says, yeah, there's te technically one small way, then I did it, you know? Even though it was hard, um, as long as it was not impossible, there is a way. Amazing. So... So, uh, you know, the one, the one last thing I want to talk to you about is, um, you know, I, I made the mistake when I started this. I never uh, explained to the audience that you have now successfully completed your training, uh, medical school, your training, and you are now a neurosurgeon in Northern California. You still continue to, to teach students uh, while you balance this. And the other thing is, I know this about you, they just, you find all of these other areas to continue um, uh, your pursuit of knowledge. I recently found out talking to you a couple of weeks ago that you're an avid investor and you've figured out, um, <laughs> you know, some ways to play the market in your spare time. 
I guess the one thing I loved about watching Kobe Bryant's maturation and his journey was that after basketball was over, he found other ways to and outlets for his creativity. He um, wrote an amazing uh, uh, piece called Dear Basketball, with, for which he won an Oscar. And, you know, when you talked, when he was interviewed about it, he talked about how um, it was about being around other brilliant people and he continued this pursuit and this, you know, this passion for whatever he, he put his mind to. The, your achievements um, as a doctor are, are a huge part of your life, but can you talk a little bit about how you find different areas to continue pursuing uh, excellence in, and then just, you know, how you balance all of those different things? Uh, because unlike basketball ending for Kobe Bryant, you're a neurosurgeon and nobody's going to accept that you just stop practicing. How do you balance all of this and continue your growth in that way? And how have you sort of um, found a life partner in your wife, Navya, that supports you through this whole process? Yeah. Um, well, you know, it goes back to the, the love of learning itself. Uh, one of the reasons I picked, or I, I, you know, I'm even in neurosurgery is, you know, a lot of surgical specialties are learning processes for every single surgery that you do. Uh, I'll give you a simple example. You know, when I'm taking out, um, a glioblastoma in the right frontal lobe, um, whether it's you know yesterday or the day before, every single surgery is a learning process of itself. Yes, you know the basics of how to open, how to do your craniotomies, how to start dissecting the plane, but you'll find different little surprises for every single patient. Um, and it kind of goes back to this journey that I talked about earlier where... Yes, the end result is taking out that tumor, but it's really enjoying that process of simply going through each and every little bite of the tumor that I'm taking through my, you know, through my forceps or looking through at all the different vessels that are bleeding and coagulating them. You know, that journey in and of itself is exciting no matter if I'm on the 300th tumor or the first tumor. It's that same exact level of of excitement that only exists, in my opinion, in my biased opinion, obviously, in neurosurgery, because it's just so complicated, and there's just no way you can you can standardize any of it. Um, and the same thing goes for anything in my life. Um, it's not just, you know, only recently I've been starting to get into investing, even though for many years I've maybe did a little bit of it, but because of the COVID-related uh, economic downturn, it kind of you know, put me on, make, actually motivated me to start thinking about how to invest and really diving deep into it. And I got into, into investing so much that actually, uh, I've actually taken many courses online and paid for courses. And I used to, even though obviously my current job is to learn about neurosurgery and do as many surgeries as I can, but I even took like nighttime classes, like from 10 p.m. to 12 midnight uh, for two hours straight, I would just, you know, log in and, and learn about this. And on top of that, I've even recently started um, uh, learning more about, um, for those listeners who, who may not know, but uh, learning more about the Vedas, uh, because in my own spiritual traditions, uh, you know, one thing that I've always wanted to do is learn how to chant them. Uh, even though I've learned it when I've grown up in, in the Sai Center, uh, I, I've tried to 
learn a lot more now because simply because now I find myself, okay, I have one part of my life where I know it's going to be the next four years. I have three years done and I'm going to have four more years of neurosurgery residency and that's going to be a constant. But I'm again bored and not, I'm not bored of neurosurgery, but I'm bored that I have nothing else new that I can learn. And that's why I started picking up all these things. Um, so it, it really goes back to that love of learning uh, that constantly I want to find myself learning something new each day um, and actually practice it. There's a lot of people that will say, yeah, I want to learn something new each day, and they'll just maybe learn a little tidbit. But it's that journey that I like, not just I learned something new, therefore I'm happy, but it's that journey of learning something new and all the little avenues and little lefts and rights that you take. That in and of itself, I think, what you know, really makes me uh, try to excel. That's amazing. I, 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 don't, I don't think we could find a better place to end the conversation today. Nothing to me uh, uh, better describes the mama mentality, which I think what Kobe Bryant explained to us as he retired his jersey was simply that the love and the pursuit of the game was just as meaningful for him as the achievement. And from our whole conversation today, it's, it's really apparent to me that the love and pursuit of knowledge and the natural inquisitive nature that you have is um, and, and that journey has just been uh, as as remarkable as your achievements themselves. So they just I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be my to be my first guest. Uh, I look forward to many more conversations like this with hopefully yourself again on the show. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to Rhapsody with Roe, and that's a wrap. <laughs>